I want you to know up front, before we get into this section of scripture, that really almost everyone you listen to address this particular sermon, Paul in Athens, this Mars Hill expose, so to speak, tend to get sidetracked on a debate that occurs concerning the passage. And I just want to kind of get this out right from the beginning before we look at it at all, because the debate ends up being, uh, was, Paul, was Paul's approach successful or not? Did Paul regret the approach that he took uh, there in Athens? Did he regret his approach? Or um, was it exactly what the Lord wanted him to do and the results were just the Lord's? Like there's just this debate, some people side on either side. I don't care, like really. We're not gonna get into that at all. I don't, I don't think it's any of our right to judge one man's ministry to a group of people 2,000 years ago. Uh, I just don't like the debate at all. If you're really excited that we're gonna be looking at this sermon and you're like, I wonder which side of the argument he's gonna fall, I think you'll probably, when it's all said and done, figure that out. But I think the argument kind of is silly. And when we get into that argument as we're approaching this particular passage, um, I think we cheapen what's really taking place here. And I just want you to know up front, I just don't like that entire question, that kind of Bible college debate you know, concerning this passage of Scripture. So we're not going to get into that at all. Instead, we're just going to allow the passage to speak for itself. We're going to look at what Paul is trying to communicate. And most importantly, we're going to apply the text to our lives, because I think God wants to say something to each of us. So verse 15, Acts chapter 17, we're told, so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they, speaking of those who conducted Paul, departed. Now let's start with kind of the motion of the text. We're in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. He has left Berea in the cover of darkness. He's sent to the sea. He catches a boat and he travels 200 miles south, porting in the city of Athens. Now, when Paul began this missionary journey, there were four people included. It was Paul, Silas. They pick up Timothy. They pick up Luke. But then as things begin to progress, they leave Luke in Philippi to pastor this young church. They end up leaving Silas and Timothy in Berea. Left Timothy in Thessalonica, but he had caught up. At this juncture, Paul is alone. So yes, he has some traveling companions, but he's left in Athens. He's all by himself. And while it was necessary that Silas and Timothy stay in Berea, develop the church, ministry, It really doesn't take very long. As a matter of fact, by the time Paul even gets to Athens, he has grown uncomfortable with the idea of flying solo. So much that when he finally arrives in Athens, he tells his companions, the people who had had brought him down, those that conducted Paul, he says, listen, when you get back to Berea, you need to send Silas and Timothy to me immediately. Have them come with all speed. Now we're told, verse 16, while Paul waited, In Athens, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, let's begin by pointing out what provoked or literally what stimulated or, or spurred Paul 
to engage in ministry while he's waiting for Paul and Silas to arrive, which is kind of counterintuitive. It would seem that Paul's not easy progressing in ministry without his companions, but while he's there seemingly trying to do nothing, he's seeing out over what's taking place in Athens. He's moved to the point that he's like, I know I'm waiting for these guys, but I still have to do something. What provoked him? Look at it. Luke tells us his spirit was provoked within him. Why? When he saw that the city was given over to idols, provoked, stimulated, stirred. I know, I know I'm waiting for Silas and Timothy, but man, I just can't, I just can't sit on the sidelines. I just can't sit back. I'm seeing what's happening in this city. I know I should wait, but I can't wait. I got to do something. And so what are we told that he does based off of the provoking of his spirit? The two things, he daily reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Gentile worshipers and daily reasoned with those who happened to be in the marketplace. It's how uh, our text is established. Now, what was he reasoning? Verse 18 gives us a, a greater insight into the core idea Paul was presenting. We're told that certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now in both the synagogue and in the marketplace, our text is very clear what Paul's presenting, what he's teaching, what he's arguing, what he's dialoguing. Very specifically, Paul preached to them what? Jesus, the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, which would be impossible to get to if in between the two, you're not addressing the cross. Now, while we're not given any indication as to the reaction of the audience within this Athenian synagogue, Luke does mention two reactions from two different groups of philosophers who have engaged Paul in the marketplace. First, you have a group of philosophers known as the Epicureans. Epicurus was what we would call an atomic materialist. He believed that necessary pleasure was the greatest good. He taught of the necessary pleasures being the greatest good. It was the absence of pain, through the absence of pain, that man could attain tranquility and peace. Now, Epicureanism devolved over time into hedonism. Epicurus taught, avoid pain. That's the ultimate pleasure. But it didn't take very long to say, well, if I'm to pursue pleasure, forget about pain. I'm going to pursue what stimulates me. Hedonism developed over time based upon Epicurean philosophy. The, the fundamental maxim of the Epicureans at this point, you've heard it before, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So you have the Epicureans that Paul is discussing, he's debating, he's dialoguing, he's presenting Jesus and the resurrection to. Secondly, you have a group of philosophers known as the Stoics, founded by Zeno, Stoicism. It kind of opposed the Epicurean mindset. Whereas the Epicureans believe that, that we should pursue what pleases us, the Stoics believe we should pursue was reasonable, human reason, logic, intelligence. This was the highest good, they claimed. 
The Stoics placed a supreme value on dignity, virtue, moralism. They were pantheists, so the Stoics emphasized beyond just self-control and contentment, they preached living in harmony with nature. In some regards, they were the original tree huggers. Now, interestingly enough, both of these philosophies, while opposing one another, were somewhat fatalistic. They were fatalistic in their ultimate outlook on life and human death. Most of these philosophers killed themselves. Epicurus said death, death does not concern us because as long as we exist, death is not here. And when it does come, we no longer exist. Put that on your tombstone, right? Stoic philosophers, Epicetus, he reasoned concerning death, his ship sank. What happened? His ship sank. Another really good tombstone uh, inscription describing your life. What happened to you? You died. What happened? Well, you died. Now, this fatalistic outlook, that the one thing these two groups of philosophers had in common, seems to explain to us why they were so skeptical concerning Paul's message of resurrection, right? He's preaching them Jesus and what? The resurrection. You see, the fundamental idea of life and death, it challenged the Epicurean model that it was just the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure that was man's all. If this physical life comes to an end and transitions to a spiritual life, then there's something else that matters beyond simple pleasure. For the Stoic, a future resurrection to life not only made intellectual avoidance of the idea of death impossible, but the inevitable concept of God ended up superseding their self-defined notions of virtue. Remember, they pursued reason, virtue, dignity, morality, but they pursued these things as they self-defined them. The problem with resurrection is that there's a God who has to resurrect, which means that God sets the standard of virtue, morality, and dignity, not the Stoic philosophers. Look at the reaction of these two groups of people to Paul's message. They mockingly referred to him as a babbler. I like that. The word literally means seed picker. And they reason he was a seed picker or a babbler because he was a proclaimer of foreign gods. Now, now understand, the translation of their ridicule could be literally, where has this bird been eating? Like the idea of resurrection to life. What Paul was proclaiming concerning Jesus and the resurrection was so foreign to the Greek mind that they're like, he, where, where has he been eating? What is this babbler saying? He's clearly proclaiming a foreign God. You see, th th their criticism wasn't so much that Paul wasn't being intelligent or Paul wasn't being thorough in his arguments, that Paul was out of his mind, but rather it was just really foreign what he was trying to communicate. So they took Paul, verse 19, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new doctrine of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. 
For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Now, in response to Paul's daily presentation, right, they said, we want to know more of this new doctrine. What new doctrine is this? Jesus and the resurrection. Because of Paul's presenting of Jesus and the resurrection. I can't say that enough because Paul gets criticized for not mentioning Jesus and the resurrection and his sermon. The prop, he's explaining, expounding upon daily reasoning concerning Jesus and the resurrection. So they want to know more what this new doctrine is. These things sound strange. They bring him, they give him a public forum, explain, what do you mean? Now the Areopagus, which is known as Mars Hill, was located in the northwestern corner of the Acropolis. The word Areopagus is literally translated Ares rock, Mars rock. For in Greek mythology, it was the place where Ares was tried before the gods for the death of Poseidon's son. In classical times, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, functioned as a high court of appeal. So it's where people gathered to have debates, to have discussions, to hear things reasoned out. Now, it should also be pointed out the deeper motivation it would appear from their desire to hear from Paul. Luke tells us the audience that had gathered, the group of Athenians and foreigners, they were interested in hearing from Paul, but they were interested because, well, they spent time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. It would seem that these philosophers were more interested in entertainment than enlightenment. They kind of concluded, hey, this babbler, he's saying some crazy things. I think he'd be a good show. So they invite him, one-man monologue, one-man band, go for it. Dance, monkey. Talk to us, right? They give him a platform. Now, the irony is that they have no clue the hammer Paul's about to drop. They think this will be entertaining at least. They don't realize how challenging and in some regards awkward this would become. We're told verse 22, so Paul's given the platform. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship, without even knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, in examining Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, it's important we keep in mind how radically different this particular audience was to Paul's normal crowd. Unlike the Jews or even Gentile proselytes, this group, this audience, had an entirely different worldview. Instead of being monotheistic, the Athenians were polytheistic or pantheists. Instead of the common acceptance of Hebrew scripture as being God's revelation to man, this audience lacked any type of understanding of Judaic scriptural values. As we've already mentioned, Paul didn't even share a common understanding with the Athenians concerning death and the afterlife. You know, it may be that this reality 
how different this audience was than anything else Paul had ever spoken to before or ever attempted to reach, that they were so maybe on two different pages that he approaches this group differently, well, than any other group that he has at this juncture. In Acts, this sermon sticks out. It's different, it's unique. And it may be because the audience is different and unique. You see, to broaden their understanding as to the significance of Jesus and his resurrection, Paul couldn't start in the same place like he would with the Jews. Different God, different revelation, different understanding of death, different understanding of the afterlife. You see, Paul rightfully understood that in order to elaborate on Jesus and the resurrection, he had to back up and first lay a foundation by which he could then build upon. Paul starts by doing something that I like. Like he, he do, do, in his intro, do you get any type of, of, of pride or arrogance from Paul? No. Like instead, you get Paul seeking to, to be kind, to build a bridge, right? Like he starts by complimenting them for being very religious. Aside from this, he, he shows respect to their culture, right? by saying that his whole argument is based on the, on the reality that he had first taken the time to work his way through Athens. He says, I was considering the objects of your worship. You see, Paul doesn't begin with the call of repentance. He doesn't reprimand them on their idolatry or the rampant immorality that was associated with their temple worship. Paul doesn't insult them concerning their philosophical understanding. He starts by showing respect, demonstrating kindness. It's not as though Paul starts, men of Athens, get right or get left. You need to turn or you're gonna burn. He's not judging them. He starts by building a bridge, by showing mutual respect, by complimenting them. And it's with this framework that Paul continues his presentation by doing something fascinating. Because Paul shares no common belief structure with the Athenians, he points to this altar that he had discovered dedicated to the unknown God. You see, in their attempts of showing tribute to the pantheon of gods, the Greeks, concerned that they might have inadvertently overlooked a deity, thereby bringing upon themselves some form of divine retribution. Like they feared the retribution, the judgment of the gods. So we had these altars established uh, to try to appease the gods, to show respect, to show honor, to forgo the judgment. And thinking, well, man, maybe we don't know of all of the gods. Maybe there's a God out there that we have no idea about. He's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to see that we didn't honor him and he's going to judge us. So they established this altar to the unknown gods. It was, it was clever. It was kind of a catch-all. But understand, the very existence of this altar reveals something fascinating about the Greeks. It's been observed that the Greeks felt and sadly owned that with their 30,000 deities and their city full of temples, they had not yet discovered the truth there remained something which they could not reach and without which they could not be happy. 
the very existence of this unknown God, it was there because deep within themselves, there was this notion of maybe we didn't cover it all. Maybe our understanding isn't complete. Maybe, just maybe, there's something that we've overlooked. Since by definition, this was a theoretical God that they knew nothing of, Paul creatively decides to play off this idea in order to aid in their understanding of Jesus, the significance of the resurrection. Think of it like this. Paul is going to introduce his Athenian audience to a God yet unknown. He continues, verse 24, God, this unknown God, who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with their hands, nor is he, the unknown God, worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to life, breath, and all things. And the unknown God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now pause. Paul introduces the unknown God to his audience as not only being the creator, look, of the world and everything in it, but more than creator, he introduces him as Lord of heaven and earth. Like Paul's point here is that the God that he's speaking of was fundamentally distinct from all of the things that he created, which meant he didn't need man or any of the things he created for his existence. That's why Paul says he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You know, Paul rightly understood that when you said God, a God, the God, the unknown God, something registered and the Greek mind. Now, the problem was that what registered when they heard the word God was so warped that before Paul would ever be able to present Jesus and therefore explain the significance of the cross and the resurrection, it was essential that he had to define who God actually was. He had to place a definition to the word. As creator, the unknown God, as the creator separated from all of creation. Paul saying that this God was eternal, the uncaused cause. Everything is started, everything is the byproduct of cause and effect, but philosophically for that to exist, there has to be one thing in the universe, eternal, that sets in motion everything else. An uncaused cause that sets into motion all cause and effect. The idea, like the law of infinite regress, is the idea like you can't jump out of a bottomless hole. Like you have to have a starting point. You have to have a floor that's always existed by which you can launch yourself off of. And this unknown God was this creator. He transcended time, transcends space, was singularly responsible for everything that is. The Bible never tries, it never attempts to present an explanation for how God exists. In the beginning, God. He was. He is. He introduces himself simply as I am that I am. Unlike the mythological gods of the Greeks, this unknown God, being separate from man, being eternal, was omniscient. All-knowing. 
immutable, unchanging, omnipresent everywhere. Paul then explains that as creator, after defining his terms, as the creator who made from one blood every nation to dwell on the face of the earth, specifically giving to man all breath and life, humanity of God's creation was unique and set apart from creation and dependent on God, quote, for all things. Beyond being creator, Paul introduces the unknown God as being man's sovereign sustainer. God created you and God sustains you, determining the pre-appointed times and boundaries of his dwelling. Paul's point to the Athenians was that every human being created by God and dependent upon God for his very existence was now fundamentally obligated to that God and would therefore be ultimately held accountable for what? For the very life he had been given. Which is why, verse 27, he continues by saying, you should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being, as also some of our own, your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or, or man's devising. You see, Paul is telling us that if this unknown God is both creator and sustainer of all things. And if man is therefore logically responsible to that God for the very life he's been given, Paul's conclusion is that it's now only reasonable that man should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. This coupling, it's a very interesting coupling. These two, these two ideas, that they should seek the Lord for he is not far from each one of us. It's, it's, it's kind of brilliant. For it's as though Paul is actually conceding how very close the Greeks, their mind, their philosophy was to the truth. Think about it. The Athenians, they were a religious people. Paul compliments them on that. They were undoubtedly God-centric, right? They had gods for everything. God's scattering the landscape. But what's most interesting is, yes, in addition to being religious and God-centric, the Greeks understood the uniqueness of man as it pertained to God. To illustrate this reality, Paul quotes, he gets culturally relevant, quotes from two famous Greek poets. Epimenides said, for in him, we live and move and have our being. That's a quote. And Aratus said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul makes this point. Like you're close. Like you're really close. You're religious, you're God-centric, and you know fundamentally that there's something unique about man as it pertains to God. It's why your poets have said these things. The problem that Paul is seeking to highlight, though, is that instead of pursuing the God in whose image they had been created, the Greeks had created gods into their own image. And sadly, 
because the object of their worship was off, so too was their worship. While sincere, the reality was that the Greeks had a false confidence this unknown God would look upon them favorably because of the altar they had constructed and the worship practices they had instituted. They thought if the unknown God came, he would find us pleasing because we have this altar and we thought to do it and we worship the unknown God from it. But to refute the entire notion, Paul points out that since man was the offspring of God, equipped with, quote, the divine nature, this unknown God didn't care at all about the things that they made with gold or silver or stone, things shaped by art and man's devisings. Instead, the unknown God only found favor in the way they lived the life that he had given them, the life he had imparted, the life he had created them for. Basically, Paul is telling this Athenian audience God finds this altar and your worship worthless. Which is a perfect lead-in to the greater application of his point. Verse 30, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because the unknown God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world and righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul concedes the Athenians had been acting up until this point in total ignorance. However, now that Paul has spoken to them, has declared the truth from Mars Hill, they would be held to a greater account. They... We're ignorant, and God would have factored that in, but now they have the truth, and God would hold them to it. Which is why, what does Paul immediately do? He says, you need to repent. This word repent in the Greek signified a changing of the mind that produces a changing of direction. It's a military term. It means that I'm heading one direction, I stop, I about face and I move the opposite direction I was heading. That is what real biblical repentance looks like. It's not just saying I'm sorry. It's not just promising I won't do it again. It is a fundamental stopping, about facing, and moving the other direction. And please notice, it's not the preacher or any other man that places repentance as a prerequisite. Who's the one telling the Athenians that they need to repent? Look at it again. It is God who what? Who commands all men everywhere to repent. Please understand, there is no journey with God that can exist without the first fruit of repentance. You see, Paul rightly understood that before any of these Athenians would be able to accept Jesus as the basis of their salvation, it was essential they first recognize the error in the way that they were thinking. They were seeking to honor God in a way that God didn't find honorable, which left them in a precarious situation. Let's kind of recap this a little bit. They feared the judgment of the unknown God a God they might have overlooked. So what did they do? They built an altar to appease him. 
Now Paul's here to introduce them to the unknown God, and he says that this God could have cared less about their altar, didn't care about their worship, wouldn't find it pleasing, which now leaves them where? Right back to where they began, now still under God's judgment. Because if the unknown God comes, he doesn't find the altar in their worship pleasing, which means that they're going to be judged, the very thing they feared to begin with. Now, in order to explain the solution, how they could please God, Paul, and I love it, I love the strategy, he first defines something I think very important. He first defines the metric by which the unknown God would judge. Because that's what they feared. They feared the unknown God would come and judge them. So they built the altar and the worship. Paul's removing those things, saying he doesn't care. So now they're back to judgment. And the whole thought process is, well, now how, like, how will he judge us? What will be the parameters? What will be the thought process? How will that be structured? He, Paul says that he, the unknown God, will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has, in, he has ordained. I love that line. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. No, the man Paul is referencing is undoubtedly, and within context, Jesus. The entire former discourse, right? The very thing they were asking him to elaborate on was what? Jesus, the resurrection. So when he says the man, from my vantage point, there is no doubt in whom Paul is referring. That's why he's there, to talk about the man. Now, because God would judge the world and righteousness, in order for humanity to fully understand the true nature of this righteous requirement, what did God do? He ordained Jesus. Think about it. In essence, Jesus. Jesus was not just sent to humanity, to sent to the world, to die on the cross and save us from our sins. He was also sent here. And the very life that he lived was public. It was seen. It was known. Because he was the standard of righteousness. You see, Jesus, the life that he lived, was to be held up as this singular metric by which the rest of the world would be evaluated and judged concerning. Sadly and understandably, this leaves all humanity with kind of a rather bleak outlook. So if God will judge man in righteousness by Jesus, by the life he lived. So if you're like, this unknown God's gonna come, he's gonna judge that judgment, I should now compare myself to Jesus to figure out how I'm gonna stack up on the judgment scale. Like I might compare myself to one of you and think I'm gonna do all right. Because I know you. I mean, if you're the metric, I'm, I'm good. Some of you are thinking the same thing about me. I get it, we're, we're all in it together. But this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, he's gonna judge in righteousness and you wanna know if you're right or wrong? Look at Jesus. Don't look at each other. Look at Jesus, look at him, look at his life. And that's the metric that you need to measure yourself up to. The problem is not only are my works inadequate to please God. I mean, this is Paul's whole flow. You're worried about the judgment of God. That's good, you should be. You set up the altar, you, you worship, cool. But it doesn't work. God is not interested at all about your altars, your worship, your works. Could care less. 
He's more concerned with how you live your life. Okay, that's good. But you should compare it to Jesus. That's bad. That that's, doesn't leave me in a good situation because my life will never be able to measure up to Jesus. Which means that judgment is inevitable. The Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, at this point, if you're smart, like if you're analytical, if you're like me, I didn't mean that to come across like it did, but it, 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 it yeah. You look for a loophole, right? At this point. You're like, there's gotta be a loophole. Could there be a loophole? I mean, wait a second. How do we really know that Jesus was the man whom God has ordained, right? I mean, because if Jesus wasn't the man in whom God has ordained, then we got a chance, right? We got a chance. So how do we really know, Paul? To answer this hypothetical question, Paul continues by saying, look at it again. The unknown God has given assurance of this, of what? That Jesus is the metric of righteous judgment. He's given assurance that Jesus is this man that God has ordained by doing what? By raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Loophole closed. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was the singular event designed to not only illustrate God's favor in Jesus, but to validate Jesus as being the rite of passage to God. That's what Jesus said himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no one can come to the Father but through me. It's been said the empty tomb as an enduring symbol of the resurrection is the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to be God. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's a liar and a lunatic. But if he did, he's exactly who he said he was. And God will judge by the man in whom he is ordained. Resurrection, proof of Jesus' triumph over sin and death, the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers, you and I. It's the basis of our hope the miracle of all miracles. And when they heard, verse 32, of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them were these two guys and a woman and others with them. I don't want to butcher their names because I'm going to see them in heaven. So you can figure that out on your own. Now, I hope you realize that Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, it's one of the most famous because it is so applicable, so relevant to our culture. While it is true, idolatry might not be as overt and obvious as it was in Athens. I hope you realize idol worship today dominates our culture in much the same way. The only difference is that our idol worship takes on a more subtle, covert approach. Because everyone serves someone or something, because it's, it's a reality, every human being chooses gods, build, builds altars, and worships without even realizing it's even happening. Every person has an innate understanding that life 
is screwed up. Theist, atheist, poly, it doesn't matter. We all have an understanding like, man, something's wrong. This stinks. And it's because of this understanding that we go to great lengths, everyone, in an attempt to pinpoint a core problem. What is it that makes my life so miserable? Let's just call it a self-defined hell. The one thing in life we attribute as being the source of my incompleteness, the root of my misery. You know, some people find loneliness or being poor, insecurities over body image, insignificance, a lack of purpose. We often see these things as, as hell. It's hell. And then once hell is defined, it's only the natural that we appoint for ourselves a functional savior. And we do this because we believe that the savior will save us from our core problem. We self-define hell, we self-appoint a savior. And keep in mind, any savior that you view as the liberator of hell will get your most sincere honor and worship. If hell is being poor, like all of your problems are the fact that you're poor, what's then your savior? Your savior becomes money. Material possessions, it's true. If for you, hell is being lonely. I hate being lonely. I hate being alone. Savior becomes friends or social scene, even a significant other. If you're single and you're struggling with loneliness, don't let a boyfriend and girlfriend become your God, become your idol they won't save you from your loneliness. For some of us, hell is insecurities. We look in the mirror and we think that is what's wrong with me. I look at it. It's the source of all of my problems, my image. So what does my savior become? Well, if I could just drop some pounds, if I could just tighten it up, if I could just look better. So I worship a gym or a diet or liposuction. I don't know. You get the point. Like we do everything we can to try to save ourselves from this hell. If it's, if it's insignificance, your savior becomes a job, family, politics. If hell is lacking purpose, your savior becomes a hobby, a sports team, a social issue. Some of you guys, you so want your life to matter. You worship the Falcons or the Georgia Bulldogs or the Atlanta Braves. You spend more time reading about your sports team, wearing your sports team's color. Everything in your life is about that sports team. Why? Because that team you have set up to be a savior, to give you purpose. I can go to a bar with all the other guys that worship the same altar. And then we can wage war, a religious war against the other group of people, worshiping at another idol of the Yellow Jackets. We can face off. Like, understand. You find this frustrating? Find it relevant? I do. But note that the reason functional saviors prove powerless centers on a reality that we fundamentally misdiagnose what hell is or what is the source of our misery. 
Sadly, functional saviors fail because they only seek to address symptoms that one savior can never fix. Which is why, for many of us, our lives look like Athens. Because we're only addressing symptoms and we're self-appointing saviors for these symptoms. We have a pantheon of gods that we worship to. Our hearts look like Athens. That said, what if, what if, all of my issues really do boil down to one core problem? Like logically speaking, isn't it entirely possible that there could be one functional savior that could free me not just from the symptoms, but also the core disease that manifests those symptoms? I mean, if there was one thing that was causing my insecurities, that was causing my loneliness, that was causing all of these things that I'm self-diagnosing, if there was one root issue, then there could be one root savior that could save me from all of it, not just one. I don't need a pantheon of gods. I can have one if I move from the symptoms to the disease. You see, if hell, my source of problems, is not the temporary, but is my eternal separation from my creator because of sin, being the root disease, my failure to be righteous, then the savior who is effectively able to remedy that problem my sin problem will by default remedy all the other ones. See, if you're dealing with insecurities, it's not the insecurities, it's sin. If you're dealing with like the, the, what having money provides you, like you're longing for that, like the problem isn't the fact that you don't have, it's, it's, it's a sin. If it's a lack of purpose, it's, it's, it's sin. You see, if I can find a savior that can effectively remedy the singular problem of sin, then by default, all my other problems will be addressed. I can only worship one savior and he takes care of all of it. The question is who can be a savior like that? While the Athenians correctly, correctly feared divine judgment, why the altar to the unknown God existed in the first place? They had mistakenly placed their confidence or what would appease the unknown God and the wrong thing. They worshiped the wrong savior. Their works was their savior a point that Paul swiftly dismantled by pointing that it was Jesus's righteousness that was the metrics of God's judgment and not their own. Paul, he's not allowed to finish his sermon. He's cut short. But he does leave his audience with an important challenge, doesn't he? Since the only way to please the unknown God was by living a righteous life as demonstrated by Jesus, the challenge you're all screwed. Not a single one of you will be able to escape his judgment because we're all unfit for perfection. None of us can earn God's favor. Our only hope is to look then beyond ourselves for a savior able to effectively deal with our sin. I'm sure if Paul had been allowed, he would have pivoted from this challenge to the wonderful work of Jesus on the cross. For while it was impossible for man to earn God's favor, because no man could ever measure up to Jesus, the good news, the gospel, was that God's favor could be received through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. This morning, please look beyond the symptoms 
recognize the disease. May you recognize that the folly of your functional saviors is that they can never deal with sin. But Jesus can. Stop misdiagnosing hell. See it for what it is. Then look to Jesus. Hell. Hell is a life lived in separation from the creator, both now and for eternity. And hell exists for one reason, your sin. Sin not only brings upon man a future judgment, but it's singularly responsible for our incompleteness. And yet, there is hope. For in Jesus, you will discover a functional savior able to free you from both the disease and the symptoms where counterfeit gods are proving unable. Jesus is able. The work of Jesus on the cross, it's a glorious thing. It not only satisfies the righteous requirements of your sin, but it provides you two incredible, amazing realities. One, forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But secondly, the favor that God has towards his son will be given to you as well. We don't talk enough about that. Not only by the cross was your debt forgiven, the righteous requirements that you could never measure up to. Not only was your slate wiped clean, the problem is that you could go like three more seconds and have more debt. Just satisfying the balance doesn't solve the problem. But what's glorious is that the work of Jesus on the cross was not just to satisfy the debt you couldn't pay, but then to give you everything you didn't deserve. It satisfied a debt and then it gave you an inheritance. Whose inheritance? Well, you were given a righteousness that was Jesus's, which means you also are given an inheritance that was Jesus's. You are a child of God, a child of the King. You've been given it all. I heard an analogy recently that helps wrap your brain around. It's like, I owed a bank a whole lot of money. I don't, but let's say I did. And I went to that bank and I'm like, I can't do anything about it. I can't pay it. The interest, how it all, I, I can never pay it off. And the bank comes to me and says, Zach, your debt is forgiven. Well, that's cool. Like, that's good. But the problem is, is that there's a reason I got into debt to begin with. That just wiping the balance isn't going to help. Yeah, I got a new start, but if I proceed forward, I'm going to go back into debt. The cross is more than just the forgiveness of the debt. It's the bank coming saying, Mr. Adams, not only is it at zero, but we've extended you an infinite line of credit with no down payment, no APR that you never have to pay back. It just, whatever you want to spend, go for it. Understand, friend, that's grace. That's grace. You've been saved and you've been given an inheritance. It's salvation. In conclusion, don't forget how all this began. We're told Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Understanding a provoking doesn't happen in a vacuum. A provoking is simple cause and effect. Something out there moves something in here that in turn produces a counteraction where? Right back out there. Paul was waiting on Silas and Timothy. He was gonna lay low, but when he saw that Athens was given over to idols, he had to act. 
Will Arnott, who was a 19th century Scottish preacher, he said it and in a way I, I would never have the ability to, so I'll just read what he said. He said, what emotion did the sight of Athenian idolatry excite in the missionary's breast? His spirit was stirred in him. A fire was kindled that would have consumed the man if it had been pent up, allowed to vent. It blazed forth and precipitated him with all his force alone against the world. May I ask you, are you provoked by what you see happening in the world around you? Are you provoked when you see friends worshiping at the altars of ill-equipped saviors? Friends that are only treating symptoms and never getting to the disease by which you actually had the cure of. Are you provoked? Are you moved to do something? To be something? To say something? Paul was. Are you provoked when you see sincere people experiencing the frustration of trying their best to earn the favor of God that he's given? Are you willing to say, friend, you don't have to earn it, you can't. You just have to receive it. How glorious. No debt, infinite credit. Grace, man, not works. Are you provoked? Are you moved? We say it all the time. Like our entire purpose here at Calvary 316 is to equip saints for the ministry. That you're all missionaries. That the church that the commission is for all Christians to take the gospel into the world, and then the church was instituted specifically to equip believers to do it by teaching the, teaching the Bible. Are you provoked? Are you moved? Are you stirred? It is at Christ's love for us that our hearts take fire for another. And there were three reactions. Some mocked, Others pushed, a few believed. This morning, if you're mocking, I can't do anything. I'll let God speak to you about that. If you believe, fantastic. But to those of you that maybe are inclined to push, there's one detail that should be pointed out. We will hear you again on this matter. Today, it's just not really convenient following you. I'm tracking with you. I want to hear more. I'm curious. But you know what? Another time. There was never another time, at least with Paul. No more ministry in Athens. He moves on. He doesn't teach another sermon. We have recorded. Silas, Timothy get there. They, they bounce to Corinth. They were waiting for maybe another opportunity, and it never came. Paul never writes a letter to the church in Athens doesn't mean there wasn't a church there. There were some believers, right? But my point is, today is the day of salvation. And so this morning, as we transition our service, and Andy, if you want to go ahead and come up, to a time of worship.